Hello, and thank you for joining us today on this Roots and Gray podcast. I'm Joel Wattenbarger, an asset management partner in our New York office and co-head of our private fund regulatory group. Joining me today is my colleague Eve Ellis, an asset management partner in our London office. Many of our clients have touch points in the United States and Europe, and we have designed this podcast series to help provide an overview of some of the topics and regulatory issues we are seeing that are relevant to all of these clients. Today, we're going to touch in particular on a few of these topics uh, relevant specifically to private fund clients. And we'll start with comparison of EU and US approaches to regulation of private fund managers. I'm sure many of our listeners are aware that the SEC adopted significant um, new regulation um, which will impact private fund managers um, and that um, was um, introduced last August and there's obviously been a lot of discussion around the new rules. Um, Could you Joel just provide a little bit of an overview as to sort of what the new rules are and particularly how they might impact managers that don't have an obvious sort of um, US nexus but perhaps are more sort of European based? Of course. So the new private fund advisor rules impose a number of new obligations on managers of U.S. private funds, including mandatory quarterly reporting, new preferential treatment prohibitions and obligations, and rules restricting certain practices with respect to expense allocations, amongst other things. The rules generally go into effect this September for large advisors, except for the quarterly reporting rules, which go into effect in March 2024. And unlike most prior Advisors Act rules that are on the books today, these new rules in substantial part, with an exception for rules relating to quarterly reporting, advisor-led secondaries and private fund audits, um, will apply to both registered investment advisors as well as exempt reporting advisors to private funds. So uh, as a result, if uh, you're a European or other non-US fund manager, that is an exempt reporting advisor for U.S. Advisors Act purposes, but manages one or more private funds organized in the U.S., we recommend that you put policies and procedures in place now to comply with uh, these new rules and to prepare for a potential SEC exam, as the SEC does have the authority to examine exempt reporting advisors. Uh, We, Ropes and Gray, presented a four-session webinar series on these new rules last September, Recordings of that series are available on our website, and I would commend them to any listener who wants to fully immerse themselves in the details of the new rules. Uh, For now, I'll just note that the preferential treatment rules in particular will have a significant impact on the fundraising process for private funds with respect to U.S. investors. They'll impose greater transparency on special treatment provided to certain fund investors and not others, whether that comes in the form of side letter terms, waivers of fund terms for particular investors, or reporting that's provided to certain fund investors and not others. And then especially for open-end fund managers, these new rules will potentially restrict the ability of fund managers to offer different redemption rights or information about portfolio holdings to certain fund investors and not others. Um, In addition, many of our registered investment advisor clients are already working with their finance teams, portfolio companies, and external service providers to prepare for the burdensome quarterly reporting requirements that will come into effect next year. Thanks, Joel. And I think there's been um, some litigation around the new private fund rule, and I think the Fifth Circuit is analysing um, that at the moment. Do we know what the status of, of that litigation is? Yep. So the, the litigation is rolling along. The parties to that case, uh, which are on the one hand the private fund industry groups that are bringing a challenge to the rulemaking, and on the other hand, the SEC, have agreed to an expedited schedule on the case, and they've requested a decision from the court by May 31st. 
Um, but it's not certain that we'll see a resolution by then. Ultimately, it's up to the court when the case will be decided. It's also possible that whatever decision the Fifth Circuit reaches will then be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, in any event, our advice to our U.S. and European clients is to carry on with preparations for complying with the new rules, just given the timing and, of course, pending the resolution of this litigation. And, and so with that, Eve, uh, let's shift to a European focus for a moment. We know that the EU and the UK have focused on private fund manager regulation for over a decade now, primarily through the AIFMD rules. I understand that AIFMD 2 is now making its way through the European rulemaking process. What should US and other non-European managers know about AIFMD 2? And can you speak to how those rules compare or contrast with the US private fund advisor rules we've just been discussing? As you say, like we've been living and breathing AFMD for over a decade now. And as with many European regulatory regimes, um, Europe loves a sequel. And so we are now in the near sort of final stages of AFMD 2. We've seen the near final version. And I think it's probably best sort of described as a more of an evolution rather than a revolution um, in relation to the changes. So I suspect most sponsors, particularly US sponsors that are touched by AFMD because they market their funds into Europe, won't see significant changes. But there are a number of areas that it's worth noting that, that will have some impact. I mean, the biggest change that we're going to see is that it's going to create additional rules for funds that originate loans, and then also funds that are considered loan origination funds. Um, that's obviously going to have a big impact for a number of credit fund managers. The scope of those rules is like um, likely to apply just to European funds. Um, so for US managers that don't have a European uh, management entity, these rules will be less relevant. Um, but it may impact US sponsors that have, for example, got a Luxembourg sleeve that's managed by a third party fund manager. Um, and there's various rules that are going to apply as a result of the new loan origination rules. They'll include concentration limits, so a restriction on funds making loans in excess of 20%. There's also risk retention rules that will apply certain policies and procedures that will need to be put in place um, and additional requirements that, that will apply to, to those sorts of funds. So that I think is the biggest change that's going to be relevant, particularly for any credit fund managers, but some of the rules, as I say, also apply to funds that just originate loans. So it may have certain implications, not all of those um, provisions will apply, but some of those provisions may apply even within a private equity or an infrastructure or real estate um, strategy. There are some other um, changes which are a little bit more tinkering around the edges of the existing regimes. Um, but the key one, I think, is delegation that we can still delegate to non-European managers. So that's good news. I think there was some concern that AFMD may restrict delegation to, um, to non-European managers or to portfolio managers. But actually, um, it, what the new rules will do will increase some of the reporting around delegation and require some additional supervision. So I think the key takeaway, for example, for managers that have um, Luxembourg structures with third party managers is that they may see an increased supervision from a compliance perspective when it comes to um, the delegation process. So there may be a little bit more compliance monitoring. Um, additional requirements that will apply um, relate to some additional reporting, um, particularly around costs and charges. Um, there's some liquidity management rules that are going to be introduced for open-ended funds and some restrictions on marketing funds into Europe if those funds or the managers are based in high-risk AML jurisdictions or non-cooperative tax jurisdictions. That's less of an issue now that Cayman has come off the European AML high-risk list, but I think um, that, that provision has still stayed in um, AFMD2. 
if looking at sort of provisions that are similar, I think the biggest area that we've obviously lived with for a while with AFMD1 is the preferential terms point. Um, there are restrictions or requirements in AFMD, which will stay in AFMD2, which require you to disclose preferential terms to all investors. And that's part of the broader requirements to treat investors fairly. I suspect your role, Joel, is going to be more prescriptive and knowing the difference in sort of how regulators enforce and supervise, I suspect the SEC will enforce that more aggressively. So although we've sort of had similar provisions in place, I think the way that they are implemented and the more prescriptive nature of the private fund advisor rules is such that there will probably be a bit of a difference there in terms of um, how managers um, live and breathe that rule in practice. That sounds right. Now let's move on to our next topic, which is a focus on uh, fund manager culture. And I understand that a current focus of European financial regulators is on firm culture at fund managers. Can you speak a little to what that looks like in practice? Sure. I mean, look, this is a really big topic for the FCA. So this is particularly relevant in the UK. So for anyone that's got UK regulated entities. And at the end of last year, the FCA published its consultation paper on diversity, equity and inclusion and non-financial misconduct, um, which is uh, had been a long awaited consultation paper and it includes requirements for larger firms to um, consider and have policies and procedures in place around DE&I, but also to set targets um, on diversity and inclusion, um, and importantly, to consider non-financial misconduct when assessing whether individuals within that organisation are fit and proper. And just sort of taking a quick step, step back, the UK has got a senior managers and certification regime, which requires firms to make sure that individuals undertaking certain functions are fit and proper. So requiring firms to ensure that they consider non-financial misconduct. Now, these rules are still at an early stage. They're not um, in final form yet, but it certainly indicates that firms having healthy culture, um, as I say, has been a key focus for the FCA for a number of years are beginning to sort of enshrine that um, into sort of proposed rules. Um, and other ways that I think the FCA have highlighted culture um, in sort of multiple speeches and letters to the industry, um, particularly within the alternative sector, also sort of call out ensuring that you know non-financial misconduct and culture is considered as part of remuneration setting, um, ensuring that senior managers um, and sort of the senior managers within an organization set policies and procedures to help develop a healthy culture and that you know there is a speak up culture, which historically I think had been more focused on compliance issues, but looking forward, um, that certainly is something that I think the FCA would expect to consider sort of more non-financial um, conduct issues as well. So I think everyone sort of should expect that this is something that the FCA is going to be very interested in during the course of 2024. Joel, from your perspective, has there been anything sort of similar or recent developments um, in the US on that side of things? Oh, it's interesting, Eve. You know, SEC officials regularly speak to the importance of instilling a, a so-called culture of compliance investment advisor firms. And we continue to see SEC exam staff assessing firm culture as part of the exam program. Uh, but recently, we're seeing a particular focus on the SEC's whistleblower program. I think it's safe to say that many of our clients would view the SEC's uh, promotion of whistleblowing as in some tension with instilling an internal culture of trust and transparency. Um, but there's no question that the SEC views that program as critical to its enforcement efforts. And just to give a sense of the scale of this program, um, you know, a couple of statistics. The SEC reported that there were more than 18,000 whistleblower tips in fiscal year 2023, which was approximately 50% more than in the preceding year. 
And in total, the SEC has awarded more than $11 billion um, to whistleblowers uh, since inception of the program in 2011. Most recently, the SEC fined J.P. Morgan Securities $18 million in civil penalties for violations of the whistleblower protections under Exchange Rule 21F17A. Um, this rule makes it a violation for any person to impede an individual from communicating with the SEC about a possible violation of federal securities laws. And the case is notable really for two reasons. Um, first, the case involved confidentiality provisions in settlement agreements with customers of J.P. Morgan. Historically, the focus of both industry participants and the SEC with respect to this rule has been on confidentiality provisions applicable to employees. So making sure uh, from the SEC's perspective that employees were not uh, uh, restricted from communicating with regulators about potential securities law violations. This case effectively sends a message that investment advisors should also be thinking about whistleblower provisions in other contexts, including confidentiality agreements with clients or fund LPs. Um, secondly, JP Morgan had whistleblower language in the agreements in question, so it's not that they didn't have language that was intended to address in some respect uh, this, this Rule 21F17. However, the language that was in these form settlement agreements only authorized parties to respond to regulatory inquiries. And the SEC noted in the settlement order in this case that in order to comply with this rule, um, the agreements needed to permit proactive communications with regulators, not just responses to inbound inquiries. So I guess the takeaway here for listeners um, is that I would encourage you all to review confidentiality provisions in your agreements um, with U.S. persons of whatever description um, to ensure that appropriate whistleblower carve-outs are included in those provisions um, in accordance with the uh, requirements of Rule 21F17. And switching topics, I think another area that is um, of particular focus in the U.S. relates to valuations, particularly as that relates to marketing. Um, what are the latest developments there? Yep. So there's a very interesting recent settlement in, a, in an enforcement case in this area where the SEC took issue with senior personnel of a fund manager sending out performance information or performance-related information to both existing and potential investors in the private fund. Um, with numbers and references that had not been approved by the firm's valuation committee in violation of the advisor's valuation policies and procedures. Emails sent by uh, the advisor in this case included such information as, um, quote unquote, embedded gains as estimated by personnel, but again, not yet subject to a formal valuation uh, uh, procedure internally. The SEC did not uh, say in the order that the email communications violated the SEC's marketing rule, but the order did note that the advisor um, had policies and procedures that any written communication addressed to more than one person was subject to prior approval by compliance personnel as an, as an advertisement, and that in any such advertisement, performance data was required to be presented fairly and in a non-misleading manner and with explanatory footnotes, um, and the emails violated those internal policies and procedures as well. And finally, the case involved misuse of confidential information. So per the order, the advisor in question was sharing confidential investment information in a manner inconsistent with the advisor's policies and procedures. So that case was a bit of a trifecta um, in terms of the violations. 
Um, but it was an interesting case in that it connected valuation and marketing um, in addition to failures to implement the advisor's policies and procedures. I think the takeaway here is that private fund managers um, need to take care to ensure that any sort of valuation information or performance information provided to investors or prospective investors in any form uh, reflects the results of the advisor's valuation policies and procedures and is otherwise shared in a manner consistent with the advisor's compliance policies and procedures. Um, and, and so um, just really important to emphasize to everyone internally, whether it's in a formal marketing document or a less formal email, uh, the SEC is really focused on providing valuation and performance information in, in whatever context. And with that, let me turn the question back to you, Eve. Are regulators in Europe focused on valuations by private fund managers? And if so, what does that look like? It's probably fair to say that they have been less focused on that area historically, but I think the tide is turning. Um, I think it's an area that the Luxembourg regulator is probably focusing on in 2024. And we understand that the FCA in the UK is about to commence a pretty detailed review in relation to valuations of private markets, and that will include private fund advisors. I think it's going to be predominantly focused on um, managers in the UK, so fund managers in the UK, but I suspect it will have indirect implications for any um, UK sub-advisors to, to US sponsors. Um, and I think it will focus on private equity and other um, you know, private advisor strategies, so including um, you know, real estate infrastructure, but I think there will be a particular focus on private equity. So this is definitely something that the FCA is focusing on. I think they're going to conduct their review during the course of this year. So it may be that we have guidance or the results of the review by, by the end of the year, but certainly a area of interest and um, something to watch during 2024. And so rounding out in terms of sort of, I suppose, our hot topics, um, Joel, I mean, yeah, I don't think we probably can talk about um, key areas of focus for, for fund managers without mentioning ESG. I mean, ESG continues to be a focus um, for regulators in the US um, and Europe. What is the, what is the latest in the US um, on the topic? You're absolutely right, Eve. The SEC uh, certainly continues to be active on multiple fronts with respect to ESG. Um, but I think the primary focus at the moment is on rulemaking. And uh, we expect that uh, potentially two new ESG rules will be adopted by the SEC in the relatively near future. Um, these are rules that were originally proposed back in 2022. Um, so the first is an ESG rule for issuers. Uh, the SEC originally proposed an issuer ESG rule in March of 2022. That proposed rule generally would require public companies to include certain climate-related disclosures in their registration statements and periodic reports, including information about greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial metrics in audited financial statements. We also expect, while the uh, sort of public company issuer rule will likely be first, um, that there will also be in the relatively near future an ESG rule adopted with respect to investment advisors and investment companies. So the SEC proposed an ESG rule for those entities in May of 2022. That rule would require advisors to determine for any fund they managed whether the fund considers ESG factors at all in their investment process. And if they do, uh, they'd then be required to categorize those funds as either integration, ESG-focused, or impact funds and various reporting obligations would apply depending on a fund's categorization under these rules. 
Um, so if and when the SEC adopts these rules, we'll stand by, ready to help clients assess uh, their funds, the funds they manage under the new ESG framework, including seeking to harmonize a categorization of funds uh, under these new rules um, and, and relative to the SFDR categorization of such funds today. Um, we'll also be helping uh, clients prepare to comply with the new ASG reporting obligations. So Eve, let me uh, now turn to you and, and say, you know, I think it's been our observation for some number of years that U.S. regulators are to a degree playing catch up to their European counterparts when it comes to ESG. Uh, what's the latest on this topic in Europe? ESG just remains like a really significant area of regulatory focus, both for sort of EU regulators and in the UK. Um, definitely agree that Europe led the way with SFDR from a rulemaking perspective, although I suspect people may say that the first mover advantage um, may not have paid off um, or may not pay off in the long run. Um, main reason is that SFDR is currently being um, substantially reviewed. Um, and that's not unusual. As I mentioned, we've got AFMD2, so European regulation is reviewed relatively regularly. But I think the possibility is that SFDR may be substantially rewritten. And the main reason for that is I think it was designed as a disclosure regime, but has been used in practice as a labeling regime, which I think has of itself actually increased risks around greenwashing. If they do happen and a labelling regime is put in place, that will sort of shift SFDR dramatically and will potentially create sort of minimum criteria that sponsors will need to comply with in order to use a particular label. But as I say, this is not something that's going to happen overnight. This will sort of be a change that would happen over a few years. But I think it just shows sort of the 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 regulatory environment around ESG, even though we've sort of led the way on rulemaking, is still certainly um, evolving. Sort of a more subtle change, but sponsors should be aware that there were some changes to the regulatory technical standards that were suggested at the back end of last year would be implemented sooner, probably during the course of this year, and which will impact templates that managers use for the pre-contractual disclosures. The sort of light green Article 8 funds, that shouldn't be a huge lift, um, maybe a slightly bigger lift for darker green um, Article 8 funds and for Article 9 funds. So again, managers to just watch this space to make sure that when those changes happen, that they adopt the correct correct template. And then there may also be changes to the principal adverse impact regime by extending the scope of some of the indicators that are included in that regime. So those are some more subtle um, changes that will be happening to SFDR um, ahead of potentially big changes um, in the next couple of years. And then from a UK perspective, um, the UK has been a little bit slower from a rulemaking perspective, but again, at the end of last year, pub the FCA published its final rules on its sustainability disclosure regime, um, the SDR. Um, UK has gone down a labelling approach, um, and so we've got four labels that managers can adopt. Um, it's a relatively high bar for most of those labels, um, but it's a different regime in as much as it's an opt-in regime compared to the SFGR, which is a compulsory regime, and it also currently only applies to UK funds, so it's not something that's actually applicable to US sponsors that are marketing their funds into the UK. Um, so again, that, that may change over time, and it's likely it will get extended, but um, at the moment, the scope of the labelling regime is limited to UK funds. The piece that is relevant to all firms, which will be relevant for anyone listening that's got a UK regulated entity is that there's an anti-greenwashing rule that's going to come into force at the end of May this year, which requires any statements that you're making around ESG or sustainability to be clear, fair and not misleading. And the FCA is currently consulting on guidance to accompany that rule. So that's something that I think managers um, that have got UK regulated entities will need to be thinking about um, in this first quarter just to make sure that they're in compliance with 
with the rule. Um, so yes, it, it's certainly an area that continues to evolve. Um, and Joel, just in terms of the US um, rules, have we got an idea of when the, the final ESG rules in terms of those that will impact investment advisors may be, may be published? Well, it's a great question. So the SEC publishes a regulatory agenda every six months. And the most recent version of that, that agenda indicated a date of April 2024 for both the issuer ESG rule and the investment advisor and investment company rule. Um, you know, that date is uh, very much not written in stone. Um, but I think in this case, it's broadly consistent with our expectations. And I will observe it's, of course, a presidential election year here in the U.S. Uh, there are some reasons, including, you know, sort of administrative law reasons why um, for any rule that uh, Chair Gensler and the SEC want to adopt and be sure that it is um, sort of protected from being overturned by a prospective Republican Congress next year, uh, that rules need to be adopted relatively sooner rather than later, probably in the sort of first half of this calendar year. Um, so I do expect that we will see the SEC move forward on both of those rules uh, within the next several months. Great. Well, look, certainly there's a lot to to navigate when it comes to ESG. And um, just for the listeners, if they're not aware, we're actually um, hosting a series of ESG roadshows over the next few months in our US offices and also in our London office, which will give um, a really sort of detailed deep dive into sort of a lot of the issues that I think our asset management clients are grappling with. If you would like details of that, um, please, please let either Joel or I know and we can we can let you have those. Thank you for everyone for listening. Um, for more information on the topics that we've discussed um, or other topics of interest um, that impact asset managers, please do visit our website, www.ropesgray.com. And of course, if you have any queries or if we can be of any assistance of any of these topics, please do get in touch. You can also listen to this and subscribe to these podcast series wherever you um, regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple or Spotify. Thank you again for listening.